Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to episode 22 of the Create More podcast. Now this is a bit of a, a bit of a special one and I have a, I have a guest uh, I'd like to introduce you to. So uh, for those of you coming in fresh, we did a, a Brexit talk last episode with Gisela Stewart and I had so many people talk about it uh, that they were asking for a, a, a Remain side and I couldn't think of anyone but we're doing the talk at Make which is a Brexit Remain talk and I thought I'd bring in uh, my colleague and friend, Bill Webb, who helped organise it. So thank you for coming on. Okay, thanks, Ben. Great to so uh, why don't you explain to people what it is? Why did you set this up in the first place? Um, uh, well, a few things. I've been living in China for, uh, for a few years and nobody talks about politics. And I, I kind of noticed <laughs> this after a few months and realised how much I did care about it and how engaged I was even if I didn't sort of affect change we discussed it over drinks um, and then recently when I came back I went to a speech by Chuka Umana and gave a re- he gave a really kind of convincing case uh, for staying in the EU and also made the case that people don't really know anything about yeah. uh, what the actual ramifications were for them and take home pay and order but um, and I felt really empowered and sort of in a, a rush of blood to the head, I, I texted comms and said, we should be doing a, uh, a main Brexit debate. Um, and then sort of woke up the next day and thought, oh, goodness. And, and <laughs> approached you and, and Giesler, uh, and who has risen to prominence as the campaigns got, got longer. And I suddenly thought, we have this amazing asset uh, available to us in Giesler. Um, so she was the... the, the, the the sort of first. So, so then, so, so you had you had the the Brexit side. Did you then think uh, better get better get someone you know pretty good to, for the Remain side? <laughs> <laughs> well, it backfired massively. <laughs> getting a really sort of articulate, uh, I kind of candidate showing lots of humility <laughs> for the for the Brexit debate. I was hoping for a more uh, sort of a Farage type <laughs> character. So you really pulled the rug under me. So I went to uh, London first to a share building with her and her, uh, um, you know, they're a kind of property industry think tank uh, and said to Baroness Jo Valentine, who runs it, you've got to help me out. I've got this ter- terrific candidate for Brexit. Can you find someone of equal calibre for Remain? And they almost immediately found Laura Sandys, who is a uh, was MP for from uh, an MP from 2010 to 2015, but is is heavily involved with the European Commission and uh, is campaigning for greater integration between uh, the EU and the UK. Um, and so there we are. Yeah. So uh, what? So okay. So the, my, I guess my reason for for asking, from what I've been told here, or what I've spoken to a lot of people, everyone's like, uh, uh, why? Why would you shake stuff up now? Why would you leave the EU? So my feeling was the. Pro- the predominant feeling in the office was let's not mess with the system that's working. It, it is what it is. Uh, and I was, so I was surprised that you wanted to uh, have, have, a, have an open debate on something that I, well, I'm just interested. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, just that you would, that you would kind of have a big debate on something that I kind of felt most people 
would have made their minds up. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I, I, I politics and work generally don't mix. <laughs> but I take an already fragile relationship yeah. and, <laughs> and politics. Um, I felt, well, I still feel that if you're going to win political arguments, the idea is to win the argument, not to just um, assume people vote for you. Mm. Uh, and should the vote not go the way I perhaps want, or it, it will go, uh, you, you can ask yourself, should I have done more? And, yeah. you know, for the Scottish referendum, I wasn't involved with at all. I wasn't really in the country. Um, but I have a lot of Scottish family, and I would have been mortified if we'd left the UK. And I, and I, uh, and actually, you, you realise in the UK, you, you can affect change yeah. um, through your own actions. Yeah. And so, so that's what, what we're trying to do. Do you, because do you, I just, as a, as a slight aside, uh, politics-wise, I feel that maybe just my age group and the fact that I have a job and a mortgage, that it just <laughs> seems more interesting. Like, the Scottish referendum was the first kind of political debate where everyone was talking about it and it wasn't a kind of oh it's conservative it's labor it was genuinely like a more open debate and that's been re- i think the reason i've kind of got involved in this one is a uh, well not not so much now but at the beginning it was a very open debate people didn't they didn't really have any sound bites to throw at each other now you've got boris johnson on the case everything seems to end you know there's a lot more bite-sized information for people to chuck around and just disagree with one small thing as opposed to it being a much larger argument the, the- the, th- the reason this is a really interesting referendum is because it, it takes these two differing kind of world um, movements which are happening. One is the empowerment of everybody through, you know, you don't have to be part of a radio show to have a podcast. You can self-publish. People have a lot more ownership over mm. their lives with, through social media, through online banking, all these little things. And so taking control of the vote I, as England is appealing and does reflect this trend. But equally, you have globalization and cities that have a very kind of gray border you can be in the home counties and still be part of london you know you drive through europe you don't really feel these changes there are going to be fewer languages fewer currencies there is this kind of uniformity as communication enhances and it feels that this referendum almost captures the conflict between those two yeah no, I think it's perfect. I think um, uh, what I want to do is uh, I, I, we'll go into this will go into the actual talk and we'll split it up into two. But I want to well, either tonight or next week, whatever, talk to you about how it went, because because you are essentially hosting it. Right. You're, you're the compare. So I'm, I'm ding, certainly ding, <laughs> certainly not. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to I'm, I'm to introduce them. And, you know, they're really serious candidates who've given up their time and I don't want to sort of belittle belittle their contribution to this so I want to get their biographies right and introduce them properly and it's pronounced Giesler and it's Giesler yeah nailed it yeah Um, (laughs) uh, and and introduce them and and actually it's such a big topic and we are the construction and creative industries it should be framed around that a Mm. little bit I mean of course it will go into immigration and security and sovereignty and all these big issues but it would be really helpful to think how actually is it going to affect uh, us as a business because that's the thing that binds everybody in the room uh, next door Um, and and actually the answer may be not that much (laughs) you know we, we I, we, ha- we don't have any projects at the moment in the EU. It's more things to do with uh, how our Chinese clients will perceive us leaving, how the, our American clients will perceive mm. us uh, leaving. And, and Do you and think that'll be in a negative way? Or is that, is that what you want to find out? Well, or? well my feeling is that it, it could be. But whether that transfers to 
actual yeah. uh, an actual diminishing of feet. Who knows? Yeah, it's so interesting. Well, uh, I hope it goes really well. I, uh, so, what what do you okay for the vote so people get interested to make sure they listen through to the end? At the end of the talk, there's going to be there's going to be a vote, right? Is it a show of hands? Is that no? Well, what, so what I what I intend to do at the beginning is to ask uh, a show of hands of those who would say they were undecided as to how to vote. Oh, you can do it at the beginning, just at the beginning, of show of hands, and then we have a secret, well, a ballot, a ticket balloted secret vote at the end to give an indication of. Um, uh, of how people will vote, but you know, I listen to her Giesler's podcast, and it's it's terrific, and it's exactly the kind of um, debate we want, and it, it lends it so much credibility. You know, I love Boris. It's, this is the the biggest stitch up since the Bayer Tapestry. <laughs> it's great, but it it undermines yeah, Giesler's yeah. involvement. I think yeah. you know, she thinks she lends it a huge amount of credibility. Um, so I'm, I'm grateful to her and you. Yeah. Wicked. Okay, so there's, there's a secret vote at the beginning because this is one of the things I wanted to ask you if you're going to do that. And then at the end, are we going to count it and announce it in front of everyone? Is it going to be very quick? It should be. We're, we're expecting about 80 and I'm thinking we can count that in a couple of minutes. Amazing. Right, well, uh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll discuss how it goes <laughs> at the end. Which way do you think it's going to go? I think like the real vote, I think it will be more convincingly remain in the EU than anyone's expecting. That's what I'm expecting too. There you go. How's that for a prediction? <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. So just to set the scene a little bit, uh, Bill is at the front of our uh, breakout space, our pre- presentation area at Make. Uh, we've got about 80 guests. Uh, Bill is on the left-hand side, uh, and then Gisela Stewart, the Labour MP and the chairwoman for the Brexit campaign, is in the middle. And then on the right, we have Laura Sandys, who's the Conservative MP, and she's for the Remain. Um, I just wanted to tell you just apologies for the audio. There was a, a fairly kind of uh, loose use of the microphones at the beginning, and uh, for the slightly more... Uh, audio conscious of you if it's a little too quiet because you really do need to turn the headphones up to listen to it properly um skip forward about half an hour i mean you can hear you can hear a lot of it if you'd really turn up your headphones if you're if you're at work or um you know you've got yeah you've got decent headphones to listen to but if it's a little frustrating to listen to skip forward about half an hour that's two clicks of your 15 minute fast forward button on your iphone or, or android phone Flick forward to about half an hour when they do pick up the microphones and we suddenly realise what's going on. So uh, that was just set the scene and I uh, really hope you enjoy it. Bye. Good evening. Thank you very much for coming. We've got uh, some makers here, guests um, and friends. So thank you very much for coming along. Um, so we are having a press president on the 23rd of uh, June. Uh, quite like it, Cameron called it. Uh, I don't think he thought he was going to, to win the election by as much as he did. Um, the issue of state, as I'm sure you know, is whether the UK stay part of a reformed EU or whether we leave to go here alone. Uh, we kind of talked a bit about it at Maine and wondered how it would, or if it would affect us, and how it would. Uh, our specifically and also the construction uh, industry and creative industries. Um, so, we have two amazing speakers that are far, far beyond the calibre we were expecting for a, for a, a typical Friday life. Um, uh, Gieser Stewart MP for Edge Baston, and has been since 1997. Um, I have a very impressive list of committees that you sit on, but, but they include the security, um, uh, parliamentary under-secretary for health, but most important, 
Uh, she was appointed UK Parliamentary Representative to the European Convention, which was tasked with drawing up a new constitution for the European Union. So, well informed, I would guess. Gisela is chair of the Vogue Leave campaign, but better known as Ben's mum, Randy's not. <laughs> She's fresh off the battle bus with Boris, and we're really, really grateful to, to see her here. Um, we also have Laura Sandys, uh, amazing, uh, another MP, or former MP, uh, for South Planet. Uh, she served on the Energy and Climate Change Select Committee, as well as many other things. Um, her commitment to Britain's continued membership in the European Union has led her to become the spokesperson for a group of Euro-realist MPs known as the European Mainstream. Um, she was up to, uh, this has resulted in many appearances on radio and TV, dwarfed by her appearance here tonight at Make, I'm sure. Um, so anyway, can you join me in welcoming them? We're really pleased to have them. So I'm going to be quiet in a minute, uh, which, will, which will be good, but we have one hour. Uh, I just wanted to outline what we hope to do in that hour. So I would ask our, our incredible speakers if they could spend five minutes just introducing their position and any salient points uh, relating to it. Um, and then ambitiously have five kind of questions relating to the different areas uh, and to do with the construction industry. Uh, without me to catch my life, I'll try and push this agenda, but I don't help. Uh, much openness to experts like this, and then we will open it to the, to the floor for questions, of which I'm hoping there will be lots. Um, and then we'll have a ballot, very quickly, secret, in the ballot, as an indication of how uh, we think this room votes. Um, but just as a kind of warm up and a bit of audience participation, could I have a show of hands of someone, of people who think they would say, describe themselves as undecided on this issue? So that, that is very few people to attempt to win with over. Um, Gizu, would you like to start? Well, it's interesting, but why don't you ask them when they're calling against? Why not? I'm so malleable, aren't I? I'm a terrible chair. I listen to the podcast and I was just screaming like, um, no, Gisela. <laughs> you can, you can now begin. I think this is a good, well, shall I use the microphone? Shall we prefer? Is that better? 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 the most important decision you've got to make in your life. Because I'm looking around this room, just how many of you know, how many of you have ever possessed a blue passport? <laughs> so this is the, the age divide. Because since, uh, <laughs> since then you, you, you kind of had purple passports, which are EU citizenship. The reason why this is so important is that you, you think this is about leave or remain, you think this is about airfares or roaming charges. You even think it's about construction investment. It actually isn't. It's about the way you're governed. It's about whether you remove those who make political decisions on your behalf or you don't. 
And it's a really difficult decision for labor people, and it's a very difficult decision for people who regard themselves as sophisticated, guardian-reading liberals. Because this is the generation that, when we joined the European Union, lived in a country that was a basket case. It had a three-day week. It had two general elections in one year. Uh, and Europe was where things were happening. And we thought this is where the goods was going. And, he, and the people who are out are seen as narrow-minded, uh, bit wrong side of 15, very educated, tinged with a touch of racism. Uh, and I find it really hard to kind of say, well, just step back from all these prejudices. This is about what I expect the roles of the nation states to be. And this is what I expect to be held accountable for those decisions. And I just want to make one other thing. If we vote to leave, I can absolutely promise you the television sets will not turn to black and white. Trade will not cease the following day. Every technical advance that we've seen since 1973 from the telephone to the internet to everything else will stop. Because there's this crazy notion out there that anything that it, it, it improved in life since 1973 was somehow to do with the European Union and would immediately stop if we left. However, the European Union was created at a time uh, where we had the Cold War, we had big trade blocks, we didn't have global forces. What we now have in terms of services, we've got the WTO. The EU is a middleman which is no longer required. We have global finance. We saw in 2008 with the financial crisis that our current institutions weren't up to it and the EU was neither hindrance nor help, probably more hindrance. We've got massive movement of people, which the single travel area is singularly incapable of dealing with. We regard it as success that we have moved the external borders of the European Union to be looked after by Turkey. Is that really success? And we kind of think that the Euro in mainland Europe is working. Tell that to 50% of Greek unemployed youngsters. And this is point why it's a difficult one for Labour. When Margaret Thatcher was the evil woman who we all loathed and hated, it was a wonderful man called Jack Delors who gave us workers' rights. That was back in 1988. Since then, it's been Labour governments who've given you the rights. And they've always been higher than what the EU did. So Labour people find it slightly difficult as well. And I would just say to you that this is about taking control. If you want to be safer, then you have an immigration policy that politicians at Westminster design, which is not disproportionately generous to parts of Eastern Europe, whilst being disproportionately harsh to former Commonwealth countries and countries you've got, we've got historic links with. If you want to be more secure, then actually you do make sure that your security services are, are accountable to me in Parliament and one of the committees I'm on I'm actually overseeing MI5 and MI6, so you know, I'm little, little M, uh, and it's great fun. And all Where's this. Daniel Craig? I know. Oh. <laughs> we have him, yes, we have him. <laughs> and if you want to be better off, then you start trading with the rest of the world that is economically successful, rather than being tied to the Eurobloc that is not growing, that is stagnating. 
And I finish on the final observation. What has changed since 1973, or even since the Maastricht Treaty, is the introduction of the euro. The countries have got a single currency, require a European government. Without that, they will not succeed. And that is the very thing we have rejected time and time again. And only if we now vote leave, we A, will take back control, but we also distance ourselves from the economic shock of a non-working eurozone. So we're going to be safer, more secure, and better off if we vote leave and take control. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, it's a great, great pleasure to be following Wiesel, who is... No, can, you can you hear me? Is that all right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, a great pleasure. We were colleagues maybe on other sides of the house, but um, I had a huge respect for her, so it's, it's fun to be here today. And what a great organization MAKE is. And in many ways, it's a sort of analogy to um, the European Union. You have one share, and you are all common participants in this company. And one of the things that I feel very strongly that um, people on the vote leave side, their proposition is, is that we are victims of Europe. And we are fundamentally participants, and we are leaders in Europe. If you look at the two biggest issues, one which is incredibly important for, in particular, London, and that's the single market, that was a UK idea. The second was the extension of Europe, which brought in all those countries on the east which had been under so the shadow of the Soviet Union. And these two things were British ideas. So I think we should be proud of the institutions. They are not, like all institutions, they do some absolute rubbish things. They irritate, they legislate, and they regulate. A bit like Westminster. So to be frank though, they are our institutions because it is our concern. So I'm not apologetic that we are members of the largest economic bloc in the world. I'm not apologetic or feel diminished that we actually shape the rules of our neighbourhood. We have a veto over any country acceding to the European Union. We have a veto over other countries in Europe. Because sovereignty is a really interesting concept. Um, as I think Michael Heseltine said, the sovereign man is the man who's walking in the desert. He is sovereign, but he has no power. And I think we've got to look at ourselves as part of an extraordinary interconnected world. And Gisela is absolutely right. The world is globalized, but it is not a zero-sum game. It is not either the European Union or the rest of the world. What I want for this country, both. And there is no reason why we shouldn't have both. If you think Belgium sells more to India than the United Kingdom. If you think that Germany sells to countries that I would say the Foreign Office can hardly even spell. The EU is not holding them back. And so we've got to be clear about our ambition. And our ambition to shape our neighborhood, shape our continent, and be much more ambitious externally. I think there's also an important issue, which is actually really great for London in particular, but also um, for architects and construction sector. And that is there are three things that are happening in Europe that are actually show that Europe's moving our way. So we've got the digital single market, which is online. Digital single market, 70% of businesses have 
across the whole of Europe, 500 million customers based in the UK. Hey, that's a great advantage for us. Then there's the services single market. That will totally rebalance this trade uh, deficit that the levers constantly talk about. And what will that do for architects, construction people, people in the civil engineering sector? This is a huge opportunity. And whatever you think of the transatlantic deal, where will those American companies, for the very first time, dipping their toe into the European market, where will they start from? They'll start, 70 to 80% of them will start either in Ireland or the United Kingdom. So there's an economic moment where we're at. And there are lots of problems in Europe, and there is dreadful youth unemployment. But the idea that we come out of Europe and that all of this is going to be solved, they are our neighbours. And with Ireland, we're actually connected to, to Europe. And to be frank, for us, there are economic benefits. For our continent, we have got to be there to be responsible neighbours and to be participating in what is considered by other people around the world, whether that be President Modi, whether that be Obama, even Jeremy Clarkson is on my side. Um, and it's absolutely crucial to understand that us walking away does not make any place, this country, more secure, more connected, or more prosperous. We are in Europe. We've got to play our part in Europe. And as somebody said to me, Brexit is not just for Christmas. Thank you, Laura. Um, I was... I think we should go into the main issue straight away. When, we, when I spoke to London first upstairs, they said this is a referendum on immigration, primarily. Um, and it seemed the, the, the best place to, to start. So Laura will stay with you. We, we, were, we, we are part of the construction industry. Uh, estimated 50% of workers are from the EU. Uh, we're also part of creative industries. Uh, and we, we need skilled talent from across the EU. Um, so our, our industry is working that leaving the EU will have an immediate and permanent detrimental effect on the industry. Well, I think migration is a big issue, and I used to represent a constituency that was absolutely paranoid about migration. We had one of the lowest levels of migration in the country, but it was of deep, deep anxiety. And to be frank, the underlying issue, in my view, about the fear of migration is actually about something that maybe the government that I was involved in in the last five years and maybe the last 20 years of um, governments haven't addressed. And that is people who have been left behind. And they truly have. The constituency I represented, the average wage was six, average wage, 16 and a half thousand pounds a year. But the idea that for us to actually lose the economic benefit of migration, and don't forget the two million people who live in Europe, British Brits who live in Europe, to lose the economic benefit that we get from having lots of different skills and talents absolutely will not serve those people on £16,500 any better. Because the fundamental problem is not migration, the fundamental problem is that we have got a lack of social mobility, we have got a lack of, of opportunities for people on lower incomes and lower skills. And that is what we have to address. Let's come out of Europe. Is it going to be solved for these people? It isn't. And migration, to be frank, the reason why we have this misalignment between um, so people from outside Europe and people within Europe 
is a decision by our UK sovereign government because they're the ones who've set targets that were never going to be realized and they're the ones that are putting the cap on great students coming to our universities from outside Europe, skilled workers, engineers, and people, and curry, curry chefs. That is not something that the European Union has imposed on us. That has been a policy that has been made here in Brussels. Hands up, who remembers that Peterson? Yes. Okay. So, uh, this notion that skills go backwards and forwards is nothing new. And if you have the difference between at the time when you had English construction workers going over to Germany to work on building sites, uh, you had real you had skills and real differences in wage levels. And I come back to where the, where the problems are. The problem with immigration is that because there is half a billion people over which we have no say, we are putting in really heavy restrictions on graduates coming in from India. Who we should welcome. Who we should welcome. I agree. It's because you, if you have got finite capacity, if you've currently got immigration at 250,000 in India, two, two cities the size of Worcester, and a West Midlands MP where 50,000 primary school places are shortages. This is an, is an inability to manage things. That is yes. a problem. The second thing is, if we can keep recruiting, if we, can, if we think about the skills problem, now, I'm German, I can tell you, every 10 years the Brits, ever since Prince Albert, have started something called apprenticeships. Uh, and they say, it's a fantastic idea. And then the bit which they don't get is that unless companies step up to the plate and create skills which are transferable across companies, it won't work. Otherwise, you just keep training your workforce and you're not doing the Companies would not do that if they keep recruiting the cheap skilled labor force from somewhere else. And then I sit in a place like Birmingham, where 30% of the population is on the age of 15. And every time we create new jobs, all I do is increase reach on community and administration. That is in the long term unsustainable. That is the problem. And you could say, yes, the UK government's not doing it, but half a billion people having the right to come in without any control means that that is what companies keep doing, and it is not in our long-term interest. And the final point is, if you are the United States of America, or the countries who've got a single currency, who have to become the United States of Europe, with a finance ministry, with a properly elected government, they have to. This is something which we've always rejected. You will have movement of labor, and you have movement of labor in response to asymmetric economic shocks. Unemployment in some area and central government response to spending money, regional development, all those kinds of things. In America, Washington spends 30% of the tax rate on exactly that. It isn't a feeling that if we were to leave and get lots of concessions uh, for free travel and work back into the EU, uh, that would be perceived as unfair to the remaining uh, EU countries. Uh, they can't be seen to treat us leniently if we leave. Of negotiation, and the negotiation will be very hard nosed 
on economic interests by the other side. And that's interesting, that's Article 50, so that this is the two-year period during which an agreement has to be made. No, Gemma, let me just I drafted the vision article. It started life as an article which said the Constitution, if any country that would reject the Constitution would be asked to leave. It actually started life as a eject bubble. And then the Lisbon Treaty, because you can never get rid of anything in the European Union, it just changed. It was drafted to within two years. It was never properly thought about. It is a process. But I keep, I keep coming back to it. Once you have created the Euro, the Euro countries require a country called Europe. Our influence, which we used to have, do you know, because, because it requires two foreign languages in Brussels, and the Brits don't manage two foreign languages, we've got hardly any senior officials in the Commission anymore. We've got hardly any people. But I'm saying, we have no influence. We are one of 27, we, we are one in 27. So I'm going to see if my packs are there. You terrify us now. Laura, okay. do you have a response to this? This is my problem. Just for doing Francaise, okay? So we've we're all got our European roots here. Um, one of the things that I do think is absolutely impossible to get around is this issue that we are a victim of Europe, that we have no influence, that we are absolutely dictated to, that we have no leaders whatsoever. Now, I don't believe that's true, but if it is true, what an extraordinary moment that when one day we're a victim, and the next day when we're negotiating to come out, I mean, kick the Europeans in the teeth, we suddenly become a conqueror. Because we are going to get the deal of all deals. We are going to get membership to you saying we have we the deal. Couldn't. The moment you say you're having the deal of all deals. Well, you say we've got the best of both worlds. No, no, no. But what I'm saying is that as we come out, the believers, not necessarily, but says that we are going to get this fabulous deal, a better deal than we have as a member of the club. Now, I don't know what gins, what golf clubs you belong to. Are we going to join the Europe? No, we're not going to join If we're not joining the Europe, then we're out. We're already out. But we're not. And the other point is, is this idea that's going to be a super state. Being half French, you've been German. I don't see any any French person saying that they're going to... Have you read the final You know, there are lots of reports. If you read every single... It's a single currency. They require... The single currency will not work unless you've got fiscal as well as political unit. They must pick up a state called Europe. But they won't. So we have got 50% youth unemployment forever and ever increased because they're not solving the economic problems. Well, I, I, I agree there are a lot of problems to be solved. But they're going to go to Brenner because they can't deal with the immigration unless they have got credits, unless they've got the European army to control their borders. But we have to do it. But, we, but there is a second group of countries, which is us and who? Denmark. Um, no, us in Denmark. Well, only one Us in Denmark, and they and well, we've got Poland. Who's no, not no, no. Poland is under treaty obligation to be in. Yes, but it's not a part of the euro. No, no, it must be. Its current leadership is setting up no, the no, commission will tell them. The commission will tell them when they've met the, 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 the conversion criteria that they have to join. It's the only us and Denmark who have permission not to join. But the point with this is that we are not we're not dominated by the by Europe. We are a participant. We can veto things. We have absolutely got power, as has Poland, as has Denmark. And Lisa, what is the situation of, of, of Norway? So Norway is often referenced by the, the Remain camp as, as a, a country which is subject to the same uh, sort of trade restrictions uh, to trade into EU, uh, but doesn't have any say in 
uh, you know, the decision-making process, and it's often used as a parallel as well, what could happen to Britain. Um, no, no way is interesting because people, what thousands would say is that the EU is like NATO, it's an alliance. It's not. No, Norway is massively important uh, NATO member. It's outside, it is enormously prosperous. But I want to come back to the trade deal. Norway is absolutely right. You know, when we go into a land and say we're going to leave, there are going to be about 74 British entities who are going to hate us. Does this one work? But what's going to happen is, why do I think that we will have a deal that will be like none other? Because I ask you a simple question, how big do you have to be to strike a deal which is unlike Norway and unlike Switzerland? We are the world's fifth largest economy, we are the world's sixth largest manufacturer, we have the world's fifth largest defense budget. We have a permanent seat on the, Europe, on, 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 on the UN Security Council. We export, we sell more to the rest of Europe than they buy from us. We America is the greatest investor in the UK. The UK is the greatest European investor in the United States without a trade deal. We are different. Um, Kiesler, if, if we move on to the, to the economy. Uh, yeah, sorry, Laura, would you like to respond to that? Sorry. <laughs> Yes, I mean, I, I still feel very strong. with the microphone as well. It's a bit more like... Does it? Oh, yeah. Right, okay. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't think that we will get a great deal as coming out. And I think that what is unfortunate moment that we're doing this is actually when the trade, uh, trade relationships will change with the services single market. Um, I think there are two very, very key areas that actually are particularly at risk. One is the financial services sector that both France and Germany will absolutely muller us on. And the second is agriculture and the food sector. And the food sector is the largest manufacturing sector in the United Kingdom, which is something a lot of people don't know. And the issue with that is that the French will absolutely go for the kill. But the issue for me is not the big trades, trade deals. It is about the non-tariff barriers. And for example, I, a place that I know well is called Ramsgate. And they have lots of lovely fishermen. And these fishermen, who all vote UKIP, by the way, um, they sell 90% of their fish in Boulogne fish market. And may I tell you, having come across a few French fishermen, they make the English fishermen look incredibly calm and not at all militant. There will be non-trade trade barrier, trade, there will be um, non-tariff trade barriers. There will be funny games that will be played. There will be ways of different systems being put in place that will exclude us. And I would say if you're looking at the financial services sector and the agricultural sector, those are the two that will come off worst. And under WTO rules, we end up with 36% tariffs on dairy products, of which is the... No, no, that's WTO. That's WTO. It is. It's just nonsense. It isn't. WTO rules are 36%. 36% is punitive. WTO bans punitive tariffs. It's one of these on Zander. EVAC, EVAC. <laughs> Can we interrupt this? I'm going to stand in the middle for the second half of this debate. Um, 
there seems to be a bit of a split in terms of the age. Um, and although that's slightly... Not between you, not between you. Um, but... It's very, it's, 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 there are cultural associations. I mean, there are, what's interesting about this referendum is you have these two pillars. So there's a lot more ownership about um, how people want to be governed. Um, you know, Ben's doing his podcast, doesn't need a radio show. You can self-publish. We have much more control about the immediacy of our life. Um, equally, there seem to be much fewer geopolitical borders, the edge of cities are blurring, uh, countries are blurring. So you have this sort of globalization. Um, so you're going to have fewer languages and fewer currencies and a much more uh, sort of homogenized world. Uh, and for, for me, what's interesting about this uh, referendum is do you, do you take ownership of Britain or do you, do you acknowledge that we are outward looking uh, and open? And I wondered if that was why um, that the sort of younger voters uh, are generally more likely to vote to be part of the EU. Laura. Um, yes, I think that certainly quite a few people that I've met under the age of 35 don't quite understand why we're having this referendum. I mean, Gisela and I sometimes don't understand quite why we're having this referendum either, but um, it is a very, very important, and it is particularly important um, for, for, for younger people um, because it is about their future. I think there is a disconnect because there's an a connectivity which is totally different and I think it's really important that in many ways we have this outward looking vision for this country and that we should be everywhere not one or the other it is not as I said a zero-sum game but you also mentioned um, sovereignty and parliamentary sovereignty is something that comes up a lot now it's all a bit geeky and in some ways quite boring but if you really want parliamentary sovereignty, we should be putting in Parliament the repeal of the European Communities Act. These are members of Parliament that we voted for that are based in Westminster. Some of them have never even been to Brussels. And if you put that to our members of Parliament, you would get 75% of members of Parliament would vote to keep us in the European Union. So when we talk about this sovereignty issue, it seems that we want to sidestep the sovereignty mechanisms that we have, i.e. our Parliament, and in many ways negate their views. So either we trust our Parliament and we want to give it total power, or we don't. One other little thing about issues around how we do, we do business. Firstly, we don't actually scrutinize European legislation as effectively as either the Germans do or the Danes. And I think we've got a lot to do to actually be ensure that the UK holds Brussels more accountable. And the second thing is a very boring little thing called the abattoir directive. And this shows you exactly what the UK does. In France, they closed down 15% of their abattoirs after the European Union came up with the, the directive. We closed down 78%. Because we've got absolutely turbocharged civil servants in Whitehall who are desperate to gold plate everything that comes out of Europe. So I think we've got to look a lot more to ourselves and how we engage with Europe Rather than, rather than walking away because we've got a lot of catching up to do to ensure that Brussels and the United Kingdom are actually much more engaged and much more connected. 
thank, thank you, Laura. And, um, uh, and also, I think one of the things which has come out from discussions is that people that are entering their sort of uh, a, a big decade of their career don't want it to be the decade where lots of things are renegotiated and unsettled. Um, Gisela, do you think that's likely to be the case? I mean, just, just come on. If you get to my age and you're risk-averse, you've got an excuse. If you're 30 and you're risk-averse, you know, get a bit of life out there. Uh, because this is your chance to actually shape it. You know, Why are you leaving it to people like me to shape your future? And if you don't engage and really think about it, you're not shaping it. And you need to shape it by making sure that whoever makes decisions on your behalf, you can kick them out. You can throw them out. Now, you may have heard about something called TTIP, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, which is going to be very, very important, massively important. I'm not even allowed to see the wording of that treaty. Uh, it is done in Brussels by members of the European Parliament. It is done by commissioners. It is covered under commercial confidentiality that you can never ask questions. And it has got to me the most vicious clause in there, which allows big companies to sue governments. The Canadians already got similar deal. They're being stung left, right and center. I don't want a position where the NHS is open to American pharmaceutical companies who then can sue the British government if they don't do as they're told. And I have no say. Not only have I, as, as your elected MP, no say, I'm not even allowed to see the wretched thing before the Prime Minister signs it. So when I talk about taking control, it is also about you deciding who governs you. And, and Laura, just, just did, to, to reply to that, I mean, we, we control you know, defence and yes. health and some but, of these But key. to be frank, Gisela knows because she's in a, a, what I would call a private select committee. Actually, a lot of us don't see, as members of parliament, see lots of things, i.e. Uh, you, you, you wouldn't be able to see a private negotiation between the Prime Minister and another country because that's not how things are done. I mean, I'm not saying it's great. I like a lot more transparency. But actually, it's the same with our government too. Can but I why, just... But why can MEPs see it? My, my argument is MEPs, the committees, can see it. I can't, as a Westminster MP, it will affect everybody's life in there. And uh, hands up who knows the name of the MEP. One. Yeah, I mean, I, it's very... I salute you, sir. Yes. No, no, no. I mean, I, I, I don't disagree with you about the accountability. But can I make a bit of an architect's analogy? I was at a meeting yesterday with somebody uh, from the Leave side, and he said, do you know something? It's fabulous. It's just like moving home when we come out. We'll just move from the home that we've got to another one. So I questioned him, and I said, yes, but where is this home located? Has it, be, has it been designed? Have we worked out who our neighbours are? Have we worked out whether it's, got, whether it's detached or semi-detached? Or is it a little flat? But what you can guarantee is that we will be in rented accommodation for 10 years while we sort out the mess and work out exactly whether we are in a detached or semi-detached home at the end of it. Um, Laura, do you think that, I mean, voting for the status quo is always sort of less exciting than, than voting for change. Um, and perhaps because of Boris and Farage and all these sort of colourful slash ridiculous characters, um, 
Is it because of, of them that they have had a more a kind of emotional message which has perhaps um, resonated with some people uh, and something that the kind of Remain camp needs to kind of get into gear before, before the referendum? Well, I wouldn't disagree with you at all. I hope you feel that I'm reasonably emotional about this. No. Um, but, uh, but yes, no, you know, as I think Alan Johnson said, you know, um, they've got all the tunes on their side. Um, it's just that we've got the facts. Now, whether you agree with that or not is a different matter. Um, no, I think we should be much more passionate. But yes, the, there is colour and excitement and adventure and all the rest of it painted by the levers. The problem is, is that they don't really articulate what the destination is. And, and I was with, um, you know, a libertarian leave who sort of painted a picture of Singapore, the brave new world, you know, exciting. But my word, you know, pretty full on when, you know, you talk about benefits and you talk about the society that we've built up. There was a guy from Labour leave who, you know, is very much... To the, to the left of Gisela, and he was talking about the merits of, you know, the Socialist Republic of Venezuela was almost his vision. So we have got no sense of dest destination. But yes, the status quo is boring, but the status quo has value, and I think that people on my side should be much, much stronger about the value that we get from working together with our neighbours on our continent. But, but I want to come back because the status quo is not on offer. Laura, the status quo is not on offer. And by the way, nobody's moving anywhere. The British Isles are not going to be towed away. We're not moving out to where we're living. All of us will still wake up in the same beds on the 24th of June, whatever the outcome. Uh, and we're not moving anywhere. But the, 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 but, but, but the reason why the status quo is not on offer is because... The European, those countries who have a single currency will have to integrate more deeply to make the single currency work. What has made the difference, what has really got you to a fork where you can no longer not make a decision, is the euro. The euro is currently not working, and for it to work, they have to create a country called Europe. And then you will no longer be able to elect them out. I mean, are you saying it's not going to change? Because in which case, the euro is going to implode. If you read Mervyn King's book, Alchemy, he tells you it's a simple choice. The euro is either going to implode and create massive unemployment across the rest of Europe, or we create a state called Europe. Um, before, before we open this up to, to hear everyone's questions. Uh, just about the vote itself. Um, so we've got lots of things going on in the background. Donald, Donald Trump being, being anointed and, and he, you know, his rather inward looking way. Uh, it wasn't because of that, but it was a British reaction to vote for a kind of Muslim mayor of London. Uh, you've got all these wonderful things uh, happening. Do you think there'll be a, a high engaged turnout to the vote? And who do you think is going to win the vote? We are going to win. We're going to win. Um, I, I would say, I would probably suspect that both of us agree that one wants a, as high turnout as possible. I think it's really, really important. So anybody who's not registered, get registered. Um, make sure that people, anybody under 35 is less likely to be registered. Um, so make sure that everybody you know is registered. Let's, I mean, I hope very much that uh, we will remain, um, but I do not think it is a foregone conclusion. Um, I spend a lot of time, as Gisela does, out of London, and London is a very deceiving place in terms of really what the vote looks like. 
and um, you know it is um, pretty sceptical. So I'm feeling uh, very much that the challenge is thrown down, the gauntlet is thrown at, at my feet rather than rather than at the leaves' feet. I mean, I don't think we will have anything like the turnout they had in Scotland. And I think the reason for that is that even the inners don't defend the European Union. I mean, you're not standing here saying this is a fantastic institution. We must be part of it. I mean, even the inners say stay, we do in st stay into... No, I think that the Scott Nats and Westminster, both of them passionately defended the institutions. I mean, even the inners say we must stay in to reform it, uh, which is, 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 is not a terribly passionate argument. Uh, Are you going to win? Oh, that was a lot, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I, I don't go into any election. No, actually, I don't even go into an election to win. I go into an election to fight the best possible campaign possible. I don't look left nor right, and I just hope that then, mine was better than the other side's. But the key thing is, it's the people who will decide. And that's why I just say to everyone in this room, you have, you have a responsibility for your own future. And you're about to decide that. We can, we can argue here. And in kind of sense, you know, it's a bit like without doing a William Hague impersonation, you know. It's all right for you, you know. You'll all be dead. <laughs> um, <laughs> on the other way around, you know. We will be dead, no, but you decide about your future. <laughs> Thank you. Um, can we open this up to the room? I'm sure there are lots of things that haven't yet come up that people might want to, to ask. Hello. Oops. Sorry. <laughs> um, Graham Longman, Make Architects. Um, we were at the British Council of Offices uh, conference last week, I think it was, and it was we had a really interesting um, debate. Um, and one of the people on the panel was uh, ex Prime Minister of Holland, and he was also a European MP. And he was pretty kind of adamant that the European Union doesn't work at the moment, and he felt that the only way it was going to work is if it was a federal state of Europe. Um, which was really interesting because he was saying um, within that federal state there could be certain things that would be held in common, so it might be patrolling borders, but then there'd be other things that would be up to each of the sovereign countries to sort of organise themselves. Uh, and that kind of made a lot of sense to me, and I thought, yeah, that, there's probably efficiencies there that you could probably share amongst the countries, and that, that made a lot of sense. And so th at that point I was thinking, oh yeah, no, that sounds good. But then I had a conversation with a, a lawyer from Linklaters, and she said, there is no way that any of the European countries will be able to agree on a common law. So then I was thinking, well, if this is never going to work, why are we wasting so much energy on trying to create a European federation? <laughs> Can I, it's, it's history. To begin with, for the original six and probably another six to add up to it, I think you could have created a state called Europe, and the Euro countries will have to do it. But you know, the European Union became like a, a greedy kid that couldn't stop eating, and it's just grown beyond recognition. And we didn't do the things which we need to do. So you know, the Dutch Prime Minister is right. There's a core who've got a single currency who will have to become a federal state, and those who are out are already out and better are better off to recognise they're out. No, I mean. I I, I go back to my point, which is that I don't see any French government being able to take France into some form of greater integration because, again, very similar to the UK, there is, you know, a reasonable community of people who are sceptical. And so there's 
a lot of barriers to that. Yes, it is sometimes a bit of a muddle. Yes, it is sometimes, not sometimes, frequently get things wrong. But the absolute workings together of cooperation, of trade, of political dialogue, and of common purpose across lots of different issues, from climate change to um, issues around agriculture, issues around trade, we have, we are stronger because we are working together. Now, whether it ends up as some sort of Monet uh, United States of Europe, I think it's very unlikely. But that isn't a reason to walk out the door and not participate in shaping what the future and a reformed Europe will have to look like. Hi, uh, James from Make. Um, can you comment on why Russia supports Brexit and Obama in America supports Remain, as I understand it? Okay. Someone still point me to the quote where Putin supports Brexit. Or doesn't... I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of... It gets to the point where I come back and saying, the big boys like big clubs. So Obama likes, the Americans like a united Europe where to answer the ultimate Henry Kissinger question, if I want to phone Europe, who do I call? They find it easier. Now, I found Obama's comment about that we'll be back at the queue both offensive and ill-judged because an American wouldn't tell you to go to the back of the queue. An American would tell you to go back to the line. Uh, so he's just been doing Cameron's bidding. And if it comes to TTIP, I'm very happy to be at the back of the queue, but the next time you want to invade Iraq, or the next time you want to have a military action, I'll be at the back of the queue as well when you want the British soldiers. So I think he really, really should have been more careful. But can I just come back? This is not about other countries. This is about us. And, and Laura, you talked about France earlier. France has given up the franc. France has the euro. Those countries got a single currency we'll have to do deeper political integration. We will still talk to each other, we will still cooperate, we will still have NATO, we will still have climate change negotiations, we will still have all those things, but we'll not have a common government and a single currency. I still don't believe that the French will go for a common government. Uh, I, I used to work in the Caucasus and also um, in Eastern Europe before the wall came down. And I would say to you, if I was in Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia, I would feel that anything that destabilized Europe per se and us leaving will destabilize Europe um, was actually a threat to their security. Um, I think that there is a great interest in people who wish us ill. Now, whether you believe Putin wishes us ill or well, that is totally up to you. That we end up with a fragmented Europe rather than a coherent Europe. And I would say to you that if you look around the world, everybody is now organizing and actually using the European Union as a model. So you've got ECOWAS, which is West Africa, has come together and are looking at issues around common currency. You've got ASEAN, who's also organizing in renegotiating their relationships. And to be frank, for us to be walking away when the rest of the world is doing both trade and security issues en bloc rather than separately, it seems like a very unfashionable bucking the trend sort of action. 
Council in creating a commission, which is the We created the, the Council of Europe, which has a court. Well, they, they're looking at different models, but they're looking at the same issue about cooperation, about working together and building greater, in, in some ways, security by trading, by political dialogue and by inter integrating things that work better across a block rather than as an individual country. Thank you, Laura. And to another Laura, I got an email earlier this week, and if I don't let Laura ask a question, I'm not getting paid this week. So it's really important. Well, we've already had a, a, a fair judgment. So is Laura the boss? Pretty much. <laughs> no, I'm not name. the boss. No. Um, I wanted to look at sort of the short term and the medium term as well. So the next two years are going to be hell, as well I can tell. It seems to be a one-sided negotiation. So if um, the UK is such a big economy, we've done so well, we're growing, we're the fastest growing country in the OECD, you know, it's all going really well, it, in, um, it makes revenue and profits were really up last year. What's gonna happen over the next two years? I mean, our, already our revenue is going to drop by 30%. That's got a huge impact on us. It's not just the revenue which drops. I mean, we can't have our costs the same and our revenues dropping. And we've seen that as a direct result of the referendum. And I don't think people are going to start investing again in London, etc., until they know what's going to happen with all the trade agreements. And if we get them resolved within two years, that would be a miracle. It's going to take far longer. Okay, in the long run, maybe it will be okay. But we are doing so well at the moment. I mean, why rock the boat? The, the UK, you know, you know, the economy, well, I should say it was doing well. We're not anymore because of this referendum. There's a direct correlation. And so uh, the question is, why, why are we rocking the boat? Why do we need to do this? Write a letter to number 10 and say, Dear Prime Minister, you called a referendum. Yep. You told us before Christmas that we would be perfectly right outside. You called in the IMF. You called in the Bank of England, who quite frankly, I think Mark Carney seriously, seriously overstepped the mark. Because if he now says that the referendum is a risk, I, I want to see the letter he wrote to the Prime Minister before Christmas and say, Prime Minister, don't call a referendum. It's a serious risk. So you have got a Prime Minister who's taken that risk and this is why we said. So, second thing is, that if the status quo was on offer, I'd agree with you. I'd say, why rock the boat? But the status quo isn't on offer. The euro is not working. The European economies are declining. They have youth unemployment. They have pressures on their borders which they can't deal with. And the, the, the European Union has a choice. We either negotiate the way that we separate and they deeper integrate in an organized fashion, or we wait for the next big bang in disaster and we have equivalent of 2008, which will take you 20 years to get back to it. We've got either organized divorce or we wait for chaos. Status quo is not an option. So, to put I, I, I mean, I just don't believe that divorce is inevitable. Um, maybe a bit of relate would work. Um, but seriously, I mean, I think it is a big issue. And, and you've seen, uh, uh, you know, 
people are not hiring, they're not investing. And Deloitte's in Ireland have got this fabulous inward investment proposition, which is we're not going anywhere, we're staying in the EU. And that is actually what they're marketing uh, their inward investment platforms on. So I think that it is a risk. And it is not just our negotiation with the European Union. It is with the other 50 countries that the European Union has trade negotiations with. We also destabilize the Commonwealth because there are preferential trade relationships that we have been able to negotiate on behalf of the Commonwealth. So there's a very, there, you know, Churchill's concentric circles. He said that the United Kingdom was an extraordinary country because it sat in the middle of three very, very key power structures. One was Europe, the other was the transatlantic relationship, and the third was the Commonwealth. And to be frank, I would say over the last 25, 30 years across both governments, we have not been ambitious enough. We have not been in many ways, uh, we haven't had a clear enough vision about how we can actually work with those three extraordinary networks that we have. And in a world that is now so interconnected, so networked, how lucky are we? And the idea that we trade out one to try and re reorganize the others, we can have it all. No, but can you just come back because it's really, really important. Currently, we have no seat at the WTO table. No, we don't. The EU negotiates on our behalf. No, no, we are a member via the EU. The EU represents us at the table of the WTO. Norway sits on its own, Switzerland sits on its own. We speak through 28. How, many, how much long does it take before you get the 28 to reach a decision? Which okay. is so the WTO has 160 countries. So if we can't deal with 28, how are we going to deal with 160? So why we still haven't got a deal with China? Why don't we still have, why well, we still have a deal with be, India? Because, be, because the EU sits on its hands and not doing anything. Because gonna, trade is not easy. <laughs> I'm actually and going to, Gisela, I'm, I'm terrified, but I'm going to try and stop you. we've got something to sell. I, um, I, I, I want to say that that's one of the things about this um, whole referendum and the coverage is that the facts are quite difficult to ascertain and seeing you two kind of go at it on the specifics and disagreeing and you're both very credible to us and the fact that you you struggle sometimes to agree uh, I think uh, is confusing for, for, for us um, but it's been amazing having you and before I ask you to to vote in the ballot which we will quickly count uh, as a, a litmus test of the room I, I'm so grateful to you both for coming and giving such sort of passionate and well-humoured uh, arguments. So please can we thank them really enthusiastically. <laughs> So if you get a, a, get a drink, quickly put your, your vote in the ballot. Uh, we will count them up quickly while you're having your drink and make a terribly exciting announcement about the result. Thank you. Okay, so you're, you're on tenterhooks, I, I can tell. So I don't know how many people put their hand up at the beginning to say they were undecided. It was about six, and there are still six undecided. So whether or not there's been any movement tonight, the, the Remain camp has voted with 57, but there are nine Brexit votes.
So whether or not that was uh, what, what would have happened if we'd voted again at the beginning of the evening. Um, before we go, I also want to thank Liz and John Prev, who have done loads to put today together, and thank our speakers and Ben Stewart one more time. Thank you very much. Uh, and Bill, who really did a great job today, I thought. Through the powers of editing, this will come straight after the talk. But uh, how, how do you think it went? Um, it was great. I, th I thought it went really well. I mean, they were, they were so game and funny, and uh, they pitched it just right. Um, uh, yeah, I thought in terms of who we are yeah. and, the, and the kind of age demographic. Yeah, I thought it went well. I thought, you were, I thought you were very, very good at keeping it light and fun, but also let them kind of duke it out a bit. But like, it was amusing because at points you're like, Jesus Christ, they're really going for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because cause I'm never, you know, I don't have the knowledge they do. So the only thing you can hope to do is slightly set the tone. Um, but equally, you're right. It's a serious issue, and they were yeah. having a debate. So I, I didn't just necessarily want to pull them back into yeah. each other's corners. Not that I could have. Yeah. But um, you don't want to stop at the moment they find a, a point at which they disagree. Because uh, what, what's been really interesting is I'd done like a bit... Obviously, I'd interviewed my mum, and that had gone really well, and that kind of had made me think one direction. And then sat down there, I was like... Oh. Interesting. Good point. But you you picked up a point which was you two are arguing about the facts. How are we supposed to know what the facts are? And then it's like, okay, well, I'm not. I'm just not going to trust your facts. And it's like <laughs> so that I find that that whole side of the argument. You're like, I well, I don't trust your facts. Like I don't trust where you're getting this information. Well, it's from. it's funny because one of the things actually we all we spoke about afterwards, and I don't, you know, facts are subjective. Yeah. Uh, you know, a, a percentage or a or a statistic you know, is always skewed or can be seen through any different lens. So although the media says there haven't been any facts that we can agree on, nobody really ever mm. degrees on facts because it's an interpretation of circumstances. But you are right. I mean, that confusion, you know, even came across in the microcosm of our debate. Yeah. Um, were you surprised by the results, which were a little more landslidey than I was... Uh, I wasn't surprised by the result, but I was surprised by the debate, by how even it was, um, partly because of the calibre of Gisela uh, and the, the, the credibility she lends it through her experiences in the EU. Um, so I thought, I thought perhaps um, she had a disproportionately amount of positive... Uh, feedback, yeah. given that I'd previously seen a Brexit debate at a firm of solicitors, uh, and the, the Brexiters were sort of laughed out of the room, and so I thought, I thought it was a very oh, really? even debate. Yeah. So, so you have you have seen debates where it has gone totally one-sided. I, do you know? I just that's really the first political debate I've ever like, well, not just been part of, but watched really, like from start to finish, and been like, yeah, yeah, good point. <laughs> like normally, I'm kind of. I, I've been, I, honestly, I've had so many chats with people about this topic. And I think as well, the listenership of this podcast predominantly are made up of people around my age or people I've met through doing the podcast. They're very open. They're open to new ideas. Otherwise, they wouldn't come on. Mm. So I feel, and my friends at home are all from the Midlands. There's quite a few in London. But they've really, like, for the first one ever, started sharing it and talking to me on, on, on uh, Facebook and Twitter and stuff. And it's like... Yeah, I, I need to know more. And this was a great podcast to try and do that. Uh, the talk was, sorry, because 
she had like a yeah she was very convincing mm. and there's another thing about going to a, a hustings a small scale political uh, debate rather than news night or something you might see on the television there's a lot to do with personality mm. how people carry themselves how they read the room I remember going to a very small hustings in Aberdeenshire and Alex Salmon arrived and there must have been you know less than fewer than 200 of us in this church hall and he just had this huge charisma whether or not you believe in his politics but that it had nothing to do with policy it was about celebrity and the look and the feel and all of yeah. this stuff and Giesler arrived and uh you know, had all of that in spades. It was already winning people before she'd made her arguments. And to be fair, Laura Sandys was also wonderful. She arrived yeah, yeah. in a big uh, leopard skin coat and, and big blonde hair and lipstick and was a big sort of powerful woman. So they were, they were really perfectly set. Was there anything that you heard that did make you... Because what, what I wanted to have and what I hoped and is continued to happen is that people are still willing to hear the other person's side that's the bit that i'm starting to get annoyed by that they're just people are just like saying one thing and just sticking to that and you're like yeah but you know it's kind of like a it's not black and white there there are bits that you have to agree would work better one way or the other and were there bits of that that you thought oh, okay i hadn't really thought of that or absolutely yeah absolutely i um you know the the more you research well, i find the more i research anything the less uh, sort of binary your positions come. It's mm. the truth of anything. Once you know about something and then you see it discussed in the media, you always think they've misunderstood it or misquoted. And then you think, what about all these other things I don't know about? <laughs> and I'm using them as my um, kind of source point. Um, yeah, I, I absolutely learned a lot. And, and I guess I, I hope that everybody is investigating mm. it to, to that degree. And I do think it's a shame in the media that it's polarised. I thought what Giesler said was really interesting about David Cameron. He speaks so strongly now against leaving the, the EU. But literally months ago was, was, was sort of was suggesting that he could have gone either way on the issue. Yeah. Um, and the nature of the House of Commons, I think, is quite polarising and uh, argumentative. Yeah, no, I... I, I it's a point that you can't really avoid. Like, well, why did you call a referendum in the first place? Then, <laughs> uh, but okay. So, so again, you've probably. I feel like you have more of a political interest than than I have before. And I was saying to some of my friends that uh, when you when I was at uni, politics didn't affect me, so I didn't care. And then the Scottish referendum, I was like, oh, it's the first non-party based thing, and I actually it did engage a bit more, and I was like, a bit more interested because it felt like I could test the waters with different ideas and not just get thrown out of a room and it I felt like the same with this and one of the things I was thinking was um as we were talking and I want to give you my idea and then see if what I'm saying makes any sense but to me it seems like for London for me being in the construction industry which is always one of the first industries to kind of get ruffled by these type of things and to be so reliant on uh, like an immigrant workforce wouldn't someone say 50 percent or something mm -hmm. yeah that that it feels like for London, it makes a huge amount of sense to stay in the EU from a purely London-centric point of view. But then the idea that if you carried on getting more and more migrant workers into build all the construction and create the jobs and all the prosperity that goes along with it, what you're doing is creating a workforce that couldn't really afford to live in the centre of London and would commute out. So you'd, London would have all the benefits and then the kind of surrounding cities, maybe M25 and further out, they would really feel the pressure of this much larger migrant workforce, potentially with families who maybe could, couldn't afford to live there. And all the systems around there, 
they feel the burden of it. London doesn't. We get the benefits, but the surrounding area doesn't as much. And, and from that made me kind of think, well, for London, I feel a vote is a good thing to stay in. But I understand why, if you're in a city that gets a huge migrant population come in, that you're not going to make the vote. And for them, I understood. But is that a selfish decision for me or for them? Or like, I'd like- Well, I don't see what it's got to do with migrant workforce. That's a bigger issue about London is a world city in the middle of the United Kingdom. Mm. So our, our, our secondary cities, if I call them that, your Manchester's and Birmingham's mm. and Cardiff's and Edinburgh's and, and all of these places, they just don't have anything near the commercial momentum. So when we build <coughs> Crossrail or HST2, you know, you're not delivering people from London up to Hill, uh, Hull. You're making sure that people from Hull can come down and work in London. So, so actually, there is a there is a distortion bet- between London and the rest of the UK, which isn't necessarily well, isn't a good thing. Mm. Uh, hence, this work on Northern powerhouses. Um, I think the migrant labour point is more uh, sort of indicative of that than an issue in its own right. Yeah. So, because I, I, yeah, so I still, I'm actually more confused. <laughs> like, well, I guess I'm just uh, more, there's more ideas in my head than, than I had before. It was very black and white to me before. It was like, I want to do that. But now I'm like, well, because we're in the construction industry, because it's so, <clears throat> people, the argument against leaving is that it will impact the construction industry mm-hmm. because people would, they would be unsettling in the economy and no one know what to do. So, but that's not a fact. And also, as, my, as, as, as Gisela was saying, was um, she essentially was like, you're not a risk taker if you don't want to do it. And I was like, well, it's, you know, it seems like a big risk to take based on not knowing what's going to happen either way. And it's a little bit schoolyard, you know, oh, you're a scaredy yeah, cat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I was a little bit, well, okay, that's, I, don't, don't threaten me with the old risk thing. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I don't know. I mean, I think it'll be interesting to see how it kind of carries on. And um, uh, do, you, do you want to find out more? Do you want to do, I'm not saying do more talks yourself, but do you feel like you've, you've filled the well of what Bill wants for political debates or do you think, no, it's just scratch the surface? Or? Um, what, in terms of the EU specifically? Or like, which do you want, because this is a really good research. Well, I think we should well. have, people want much more uh, involvement in mm. the politics uh, and how their lives are governed. Uh, I live in Tower Hamlets and we voted a few years ago to get a mayor and I just thought, uh, I was very forward, even if he doesn't represent my party, he or she doesn't represent my party politics, at least you have someone championing your borough and it's mm. worked so well in Newham. Um, it had a kind of rocky start in Tower Hamlets and now it's working terrifically well. I think voting once every four years isn't enough, um, but whether or not we should have a series of referendums on every micro issue probably isn't Mm. isn't right uh, either, given how polarising they can be. So we do need to find mechanisms whereby we can make our views known more frequently than once every four years. Uh, yeah, and, de- and I do think debate is a good way of teasing people out on, on, on issues. Yeah. But, but for this referendum, like, uh, I guess there's a certain point where you, you stop needing to do more research and then start like 
defending that position, right? Mm-hmm. But it feels like people have got to saturation point now. It's now it's now it's a case of making a decision, and by God, I'm going to stick with it. Like that seems to be people's. Are you, are you th- my personal choice? My per- how I will vote personally, and you. I think I'm I've come to a. I think I've come to a decision. Um, I wanted to stay neutral. I hope my neutrality came across no, on, the, yeah. on the day. Um, whether or not I'd tell you to today, I think you probably know know what my views are. I thought I did think though, that the Gisela made some really interesting points about um, yes, there, there are circa there there are sort of ramifications of the decision to leave, but equally there are ramifications for deciding to stay, and I think there's often. Uh, it, they're very well publicised what, what could happen if you left. But equally, you know, there are a lot of unknowns and uncertainties and risks uh, for the other path. And, and, and actually, as I said, the more I've looked at it, the, the, you know, the closer it is. Certainly. Brilliant. Well, uh, I think you did a brilliant job and I think there's <laughs> definitely a future for you in doing something like that. Brilliant. Thanks a lot, Bill. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. Worried you'll need to babysit your robot vacuum? Think again. Meet Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum with AI-powered navigation to recognize and avoid over 100 objects. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards. And Digital Trends says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com. And discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.